0: Welcome, episode 63 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today by uh, Alan Cohn, the former Assistant Secretary for Strategy, Planning, Analysis, and Risk in the DHS Office of Policy. Uh, uh, We'll be interviewing him, actually, separately from the News Roundup uh, shortly uh, and by uh, Michael Battis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in Depto's New York office. Uh, Michael, uh, uh, what do you think the story of the week is?
1: Uh, I think it's probably a collection of uh, actions by European officials, um, uh, mainly in the competition area, uh, going after Google, launching inquiries into whether there's, uh, there are too many barriers uh, at the national level for e-commerce uh, companies, uh, they seemed to be getting very active all of a sudden. Um, and yeah,
0: they, say, they went after Google on antitrust grounds, right? They uh, accused Google of uh, uh, favoring its own shopping results in searches um, uh, and then sort of hinted, if I remember, that they were going to go after them for... Uh, uh, Giving away um, Android, but then requiring that people take a bundle of services if they wanted the full Google Android experience
1: right, yeah, and I think that that one 's just starting out but they've they've really already brought charges against google on the um, on the search uh, favoritism allegation,
0: yeah, so I mean this is weird because of course, the only way for search to work is if you 're constantly tweaking it because the uh, uh, the spam merchants, uh, and the people who want to, uh, to rise high in the, uh, rankings despite the fact that no one actually wants to read their site are constantly adjusting their tactics. So, uh, there's lots of secret sauce that has to go into search ratings. Uh, so the idea that there's some canonical, wonderful, perfect, um, search mechanism, uh, that can be just frozen is, is clearly wrong. So they have to be saying, well, the one thing you can't do is protect your own services. My guess is they have to say that in a context where Google is uh dominant already essentially has a monopoly and then is misusing it to leverage itself into other areas. I think that's got to be the theory
1: yeah, I think that's right and I think you know the example i've I've read that they've talked about is google shopping so if you if you search for a pair of running shoes or something, and then the, the, the first link is to um, you know Google shopping service rather than some other place you could get those shoes. That's a form of favoritism that, that I think they're not happy about. Yeah. The irony here is uh, Google could
0: change that tomorrow, and you wouldn't be able to tell from their annual results that anything had changed because the amount of money they make from their shopping search, uh, uh, their shopping service Cannot be even a rounding error. No, no I, I agree with you. Uh, I, the, the thing I thought was sort of uh, uh, gave away the game is that the uh, um, director general for digital, uh, the digital economy gave a speech at the same time saying, uh, European industry is losing its edge. Uh, We've we completely been blown away by the Air Americans, so let's just regulate them until they can't compete with uh, Europeans anymore, and we can get back to where we belong uh, in the uh, digital economy. Very um, aggressive and candid uh, uh, speech about what is probably behind some of these uh, new regulatory initiatives.
1: Yeah, without a lot of specificity about what he's proposing, what sort of regulations, other than I'm sure uh, data privacy will be part of it.
0: Well, I, I think antitrust or competition uh, uh, is probably part of it. They're doing a big inquiry into net commerce as well, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, sort of looking generally at uh, uh, what the problems might be in that area. And I guess the problem is going to turn out to be U.S. companies are doing too well. Um, well, all right. Uh, uh moving on, uh, uh, we uh, uh, we have to welcome back uh, our long-lost uh, uh, panel member, Jason Weinstein, formerly with the Justice Department, where he oversaw criminal computer crime prosecutions, among other things, and is now doing altogether too much criminal and civil litigation at Steptoe. Uh, uh, welcome back, Jason.
2: Thank you, Stuart. I actually, I've been lying to you. I, I actually haven't been doing that much work. I've been on strike because the Patent Office denied my application for a patent for the podcast. But I decided to come back in. Anyway. So that
0: was you. I wondered who that was. Uh, yeah. So
2: that was me. I did under an assumed name, but that was me.
0: <laughs> so uh, you got you got a uh, candidate for a story of the week.
2: Well, my candidate was going to be Michael's, uh, so I guess I'd have to say the story of the week is my return. To yes,
0: my yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I can hear them cheering in the streets outside. Uh, uh, and finally, Doug Cantor, a partner in Steptoe's Government Affairs and Public Policy Group at Steptoe's D.C. office and uh, uh, our expert on uh, what's happening on the Hill uh, uh, in uh, uh, technology law. Uh, Doug, this is supposed to be Cyber Week, isn't it? Uh, uh, lots happening, right?
3: It is Cyber Week in the House, uh, maybe followed by a Cyber Week in the Senate coming up in a couple of weeks. But right now the House has their day, although it's interesting to look at. There is both a lot happening and there's a big bill that's left behind this week in Cyber Week. So to me, that's the, the big development this week. What What got left behind? So the House is going to consider the intelligence bill on information sharing and the homeland security bill on cybersecurity information sharing and and both of those have a lot of moving pieces. But the bill that got left behind was the data breach bill out of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, which had both Democratic and Republican supporters coming out of subcommittee, had a very contentious markup in the full committee on which A number of amendments were proposed. A number were actually uh, voted in, although many were defeated. There were a handful that the chairman promised uh, the sponsor of the amendment he would work on as the bill went to the floor. And then they got to the end of the markup, and all the Democrats on the committee voted against it, including the bill's co-sponsor, Peter Welch of Vermont. So they have some things they've got to clean up before that bill can get to the floor, and that's why it's not part of the package that's going in Cyber Week this So week. he was before it, before I, he was against I, it?
0: I, I, con- well, it was an interesting <laughs> here's,
3: here's- uh, process. Go ahead,
0: Stuart. I, I, my, I'm confused. Uh, the last time I looked, uh, Republicans outnumbered Democrats in the House about two to one, including on the committee. Even if all the Democrats vote against it, doesn't it come out on a party-line vote? Uh, no question. It, the
3: bill did advance on a party-line vote, but they do want some bipartisanship in the bill, in part to improve the prospects of that bill uh, being more influential when this legislation goes over to the Senate, where, um, as, as you and our experienced listeners know, uh, even though the Senate is now Republican, you need some bipartisanship to really get something done. So that remains their goal, even though they could clearly uh, just run it through the House without a single Democrat supporting it.
0: So we're back to just information sharing. Uh, uh, the, the, this will be very, the breach notification thing is very interesting because the president has been supporting uh, a legislation of this sort, uh, which is how you got to a, uh, uh, a bipartisan uh, participation in the first place. Uh, uh, information sharing, uh, um, How how is that uh, likely to shape up? Uh, uh, is it going to come out of the House this week?
3: Yeah, but both the information-sharing bills will come out of the House this week. The big question is, uh, how large will the vote margin be? Uh, how many Democrats will they get? The, um, the intelligence bill has made a few nods toward the privacy uh, community to try to show that the information that is shared won't be used for Uh, general surveillance and run into some of the problems that the critics have brought up. That said, uh, those critics have not yet signed on to the bill, although they have been a little more muted in their criticism than they had been in the past. The question is, will that be enough for members of Congress, uh, particularly a number of Democrats, to say, you know what, it's time to vote for something here and let's move it along. If it gets a big vote, That could give the bill a lot of momentum, and uh, with the Senate bill through committee, uh, that may help move them to the Senate Cyber Week, and and we may actually be on the road to getting something done.
0: Is the uh, resistance of the privacy groups developing any um, attraction on the uh, far right of the Republican Party? Uh,
3: There's some at the margins. I I think – Uh, there will be very strong support for these bills among Republicans and that it will really be only a small number of outliers who may be against it at this point. Uh, The White House still has not endorsed these bills in part because of the privacy concerns, although they've been a little more muted at this turn as well. So I I think they're still waiting to see how this plays out and, and what type of deal could be cut. That's that's the main impediment, I think, more than the uh, uh, the
0: privacy concerns on the right. All right. And um, uh, what's the expectation for the uh, uh, data breach bill uh, back for negotiations? And in other administrations, the uh, the president's team would have stepped in to try to smooth this over and come up with a, an adult solution. Uh, any sign that that's happening? No, there's no sign that's
3: happening. That hasn't been the way this administration has operated. Their view has been, Congress, you do your thing, and we'll let you know at the end what we think. It's not necessarily the best way to get legislation done, but that's been their tack. So the House uh, Republicans and and, De- and the Democrats they're working with are left to try to negotiate this out on their own, notwithstanding the fact that it is a White House priority uh, and and I think there are signs they may get there, although uh, the road may be bumpy. The the biggest thing they're arguing about at the moment is uh, the treatment of health information and whether that is personally identifiable or not, and and that's a big struggle.
0: Yeah, no, so that's right. That uh, uh, considering that uh, there are probably four million uh, pieces of health data sent to the government already on a. Uh, uh, maybe even a daily basis, if I remember, because of all the Medicare uh, reimbursement uh, issues. Uh, uh, it's probably a little late to say we don't want the government to see our health data. Uh, but, um, okay, so next week uh, we'll, we'll ask what the Senate is uh, doing with information sharing and what the House is finally going to do on data breach. Should, should be interesting. Maybe you'll come Absolutely. back. Absolutely. That, that'd uh, be great to come back. We'll see what the vote counts look like. Sounds good. Um, okay, next story uh, the um uh uh, cops in Maine uh, finally agreed to uh, pay a ransom to get their uh, uh, data back because it had been encrypted by one of these uh, encryption bots that uh, it, it is uh, sweeping the Internet. Uh, they, they got it pretty cheap. Uh, they paid in Bitcoin. I think uh, uh, given the fact that they were paying ransom uh, and that they were paying it in Bitcoin, I have to ask Jason what he thinks about that story.
2: Well, you know, we talked, uh, I think, about this um phenomenon in a prior episode about the, the question of whether someone, a private citizen who paid ransom to get their their files decrypted would be in any way exposing themselves to criminal liability, and we, I think, took the view that they would not. And now, as if to prove the point, you have police departments themselves paying ransom when their own servers are are uh, taken over by ransomware. There's a, uh, a ransomware known as Megacode that was placed on a server that was shared by, I think, three or four p- local police departments and a sheriff's department in Maine, Last month, and it uh, presumably got there. Or appears to have gotten there because an employee had clicked on a link in a phishing email, and uh, instantly the files of these police departments and sheriff's, sheriff's department were encrypted. And the the cops very quickly made the decision to pay the ransom, as you said, in Bitcoin. It was about 300 euros, which seems, but I think 318 or 320 dollars at the time, uh, which seems like a, a pretty low price to pay. But uh, the the sheriff was quoted in some news stories afterwards as as um, uh, talking up the virtue of paying ransom to get your stuff back right away. So now you have police so departments endorsing, endorsing paying ransom, not uh, criticizing you for what, it.
0: What is the theory of liability, that uh, you are you somehow become an aider and abettor to the act of uh, extortion by paying?
2: I mean, I, I think that would be uh, uh, the only theory of liability I would think you could get to, but you'd have to do some real stretching of the law to get there. I, I mean, you're unquestionably a victim of the crime.
1: I don't think you could get anybody on an aiding and abetting theory because they'd have to have uh, they'd have to want the crime to to actually succeed. But I think you could you could have at least theoretical uh, liability depending on the identity of the hacker. If it's a, a foreign terrorist group, you could be accused of uh, providing material support. If it's a foreign official, you could be uh, accused of violating the. Um, uh, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And and if the, the hackers are on an OFAC sanctions list, um, you could be accused of violating the sanctions. And it's particularly ironic now that we've got an OFAC regime uh, at least set up um, with no names listed yet, but at least the possibility of hackers um, specifically being on an OFAC sanctions list. So if you end up paying off one of those hackers, um, you could be violating... AIPA uh, and and other U.S. laws. So I I wouldn't say there's no risk, but it depends on the identity of the uh, of the hackers.
2: No, that's a fair point. And of course, you don't know who the hacker is at the time, even if they've told you who they are or or generally who they are. That doesn't mean that really is who they are. Um, but it does underscore you know the 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 message that you can't quite emphasize enough, which is. You got to be careful about opening phishing emails, even if you work at a police department. And you've, it's always good to have a backup, so that uh, the only way to get your data back is is not uh, paying a ransom.
0: So uh, what's what's then? The, uh, speaking of being careful, what is this Google Wallet privacy suit all about, Michael? Uh, uh, how how uh, how serious is it?
1: Uh, I thought it was significant. This is a federal district court ruling, so you know. I guess uh, Google's not just facing heat in Europe. Um, uh, but one of the notable things here was that the court found that that the plaintiff had standing, uh, in part based on her theory that um, she didn't get the benefit of the bargain. So she used the Google Google Wallet to buy uh, things from the, the Google App Store, uh, and and spent a dollar and seventy-seven cents. And she said part of what she paid for with that dollar and seventy cents. Was uh, to have Google abide by its, its uh, privacy policy and, and protect the privacy of her information, which it then did not do. So she lost the benefit of the bargain, some some small percentage of that dollar seventy-seven cents. Uh, and she also <laughs> said that. This is the flavor
0: of the month in uh, class actions, though, right? Uh, that's what the, uh, the the lawsuit over uh, uh, supposedly insecure uh, 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 automation tools in cars is all about. Uh, I bought a car. I expected that I was buying a secure car. Now it turns out it's not secure. I want a refund, uh, uh, and therefore everybody in America is part of the class.
1: Yeah, and, and what's significant, I think, is that courts in the past have not found that this is really uh, the sort of concrete harm that's uh, enough to uh, to give you standing but there are at least now a few courts that have said this is enough um, and the other thing that the court did here was was say that it was um, that she she had standing and it stated a claim uh, based on her allegation that her privacy lost her, her private information lost its uh, market value or or had its market value diminished when Google gave it away for free without her permission to app developers and that's something also that other courts have have said was not enough to, to give you standing but this court said it was.
0: Okay, well, we're running low on time. Let's uh, let's go uh, into a uh, uh, hurry-up uh, offense uh, on some of these stories. The SEC is taking heat because uh, it's perceived to be uh, uh, the only thing that stands between uh, uh, Silicon Valley and the change in ECPA to require uh, um, a, a search warrant whenever uh, um, you. Uh, uh, gain access to uh, uh, the, the content or the uh, access to uh, files even stored for more than 180 days. Uh, uh, and Mary Jo White took uh, took a little bit of a beating from Republicans on that issue, didn't she, uh, Jason?
2: She did. Although you know she made the point to the, the House Republicans that that the SEC's practice in this area is a little is quite different from from DOJ's, which is they. Uh, attempt initially to get the the information from the user before they go to the provider and when they do go to the provider they typically provide notice to the the target uh, and give him or her an opportunity to challenge that's obviously different from the way a more covert uh, criminal investigation is conducted but um, at the end of the day I, I think that um, uh, you know the problem with with it, the SEC is not the only holdout there are congressional committees that want access to provider data for their investigations and don't have search warrant authority either and I think it's it's been uh, there's been a solution obvious for some time that all they have to do is create a new type of probable cause uh, based order that the SEC can get that they don't have to call a search warrant um, but the SEC is is uh, jealously guarding its ability to get this data with less than a warrant
0: well, and it's uh, it's fun to watch people uh, uh, decide whether they uh, love the Elizabeth Warren uh, left more than they love the ACLU left. Uh, um, so uh, uh, I, I'm just I'm just going to get popcorn. Um, the uh, other other uh, uh, stories that are probably worth mentioning: uh, WikiLeaks. Uh, if you didn't think they were scum before, you should look at what they've done with the Sony emails. They've posted a searchable database, uh, uh, essentially violating the privacy of every uh, Sony employee who sent an email. Uh, you can look up people's health problems, their family problems, uh, uh, yourself. You can you can Google for yourself to see if the folks inside Sony are talking about you. Turns out that's pretty unlikely. Uh, uh, and... Uh, uh, for the thinnest possible uh, justification, uh, uh, I I only wish that uh, I, I only hope that this results in four uh, feature-length movies about uh, Julian Assange, all of which uh, vie to determine which one thinks he's creepier.
2: Although that's what Julian Assange w- want. The only thing, Stuart, I could hope is that this means that David Boyce would now go after Julian Assange. I would rather watch that than Mayweather-Pacquiao.
0: Well, I, I do have a question, uh, again, where the hell is the FC to FTC? This is this is clearly a deceptive and uh unfair practice on the part of WikiLeaks. Uh, why can't they be investigated and uh uh there, uh, uh and fined? Uh, uh it's kind of a surprise or forced not to do business in the United States including raising funds. Uh, um it's just astonishing. Uh, um the uh, the other topic I wanted to talk about briefly, we don't have enough time, but it's really fascinating the the China bank technology regulation is causing turmoil. Um, they're basically telling uh, Chinese banks to stop using U.S. tech. The Chinese banks said, we can't do that. We're locked into uh, standards. Uh, um, the U- uh, the Obama administration went and said, this is outrageous. you got to stop. Uh, and the um, Chinese suspended the reg briefly, and then it turns out that the banks are probably still doing as much as they can to get rid of uh, uh, U.S. technology. And in a story in the New York Times today, uh, uh, it turns out that IBM is working closely with the uh, Chinese government to try to design mechanisms that will help them break free of U.S. technology, other than IBM's. Um, and so uh, uh, the... Challenge to policymakers is just astonishing, and the enthusiasm of the Chinese to get rid of Americans and the willingness of uh, American companies to play along if they think they've got uh, an opportunity is uh, um, it creates a dynamic that makes it very hard for the U.S. to actually have an impact on this policy. Okay, well, that uh, ends our news roundup. Let's turn now, if we can, to uh, uh, our interview of Alan Cohn. I'm really pleased to have Alan Cohn uh, uh, here. Uh, Alan uh, uh, has spent a decade at DHS just about the, just about in the policy office uh i and uh before that was in the private practice of law uh and was a uh, emergency uh, uh responder uh, uh, and I hired Alan at BHS, so this is uh, remarkably incestuous. And if you don't think that's incestuous enough, Alan now works at Steptoe and Johnson with me. Uh, but, of course, we're um, interviewing him uh, because until... Very recently, he was the, uh, assistant secretary, uh, for about six things. Let me see if I can remember. Strategy, planning, analysis, and risk. Didn't anybody ever tell you that the longer you're titled, the less power you actually have? You should have just said, uh, for, something and just stuck to it. Anyway, uh and in fact was the number 2 by the time he finished uh, in the policy office. uh and so saw pretty much everything there was for the, the the policy office to see which was to say pretty much everything every policy call that the Department of Homeland Security had uh, uh to welcome. Thank you. Okay. So I uh the purpose of this, I guess, is to kind of look back at what you've done over the decade at uh, DHS and to think about what it might mean, especially on the cyber front, but more generally as well. Uh, so you had a decade there. You saw it practically from infancy to Whatever gawky adolescence it 's in now, uh, and and so my question is uh, what 's changed? Uh, uh, how is the department today, which is sort of two or three secretaries past my time, uh, uh, different uh, and uh, um, what 's to be celebrated what 's to be mourned about the last ten years?
4: So, well, first, I want to thank you and commend you on two of your best decisions that you've made. uh, This is hiring you twice. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, But no, it's amazing to think about where the department has come from since I came on board in June 2006, a couple of months after you came on board. And this was in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Yep. Uh, You couldn't... A good day was when there were no more than two or three news vans outside the department. Yes, and, and, uh, and, and, and one subpoena. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so it's been an amazing thing to watch the department actually mature yeah. uh, since then. Um, the department, you know, Secretary uh, Chertoff uh, did a good job of driving the department forward. Secretary Napolitano picked that up and really got the department off the front page in a bad way, Mm -hmm. let the department settle back down to business. Um, And Secretary Johnson has really picked up uh, the mantle and really driven the department forward in terms of its maturity as an organization, as a corporate organization an entity greater than the sum of its parts. So I always thought that
0: the the people who started DHS had a heavy dose of DOD in them uh, and uh, uh, built models that were designed to work the way DOD worked. Uh, it was very hard to do that because you had nobody who uh, had that sort of institutionalized experience. But Johnson coming out of DOD could see all the uh, sort of uh, half-finished remnants of DOD uh, in the department
4: and uh, rebuild them. I think that's right. I think you also had a lot of tension at the beginning between some people who thought that the purpose of putting all these organizations together was to make one single organization, no separate uniforms, no separate identities, uh, yeah. just a department, maybe a different color patch on your shoulder. Right. And then there were others who thought this was going to be business as usual. This was this was going to be the standard federal. Cabinet department holding company. Right. Where the organizations talk to each other every once in a while. So like,
0: like commerce department, famously the
4: attic of the federal government. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so I think what you have now, you have the turning over of a couple of generations of leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had Secretary Johnson, who's not of uh, the Department of Defense, but who experienced it for long enough to know what he wanted. Right. To be able to come in and say, look, we have to figure out a way you know, to work together, and you had leadership in each of the organizations that I think was ready to give that a try. So how did that affect
0: cyber uh, especially? Because uh, uh, I, I, I will say cyber was a role uh, – that while technically it was assigned to DHS uh, in the Homeland Security Act, uh, uh, the first couple of years you would not have seen any leadership, and uh, uh, we only began to kind of raise our hand and say we can help with this uh, toward the end of the Chertoff years, toward the end of the Bush years. Uh, uh, sure looks like a lot has happened
4: since then. Oh, I think it's it's one of the areas where the department has grown uh the most. I remember when I came in, in in 2006 and you you hired me to do emergency management policy and I I went to go observe one I think one of the first if not the first cyberstorm exercise mm-hmm. which was very deep in the bowels yes. of the i you know, the infrastructure protection office um uh, among a small group of dedicated people trying things out um you know with the new administration with the first quadrennial homeland security review mm-hmm. uh, one of the one of the most substantive debates that went on was is cybersecurity its own homeland security mission uh and this was taken up at the highest uh-huh. levels uh and it was decided that yes it was it was something uh related to but uh but coequal to the infrastructure protection right. responsibilities um and if you looked out into the future, you could see it having the same prominence as the department's counterterrorism and border and immigration and emergency management missions. And, and that think, was right. Yes. I think you see that, that coming to fruition now. That's interesting, which means that NPPD,
0: uh, the unwieldily named, uh, uh, uh quasi component, uh, it started started as the department's attic uh, where we just stuck things that were important to the secretary and we didn't have a component to deal with them uh, and it it became much more focused on cyber lots of cyber activity there uh, uh, and that has turned it into an operational uh, unit that you know, uh, has a mission, as you say, uh, that is coequal with all the other uh, components.
4: I think that's right. I mean, I think that the cyber response, the department's cyber responsibilities have given uh, the National Protection and Programs Directorate a real organizing principle. And by design or by default, it is now the department's cyber and infrastructure protection agency, for lack of a, of a better term. So what does it do?
0: I, you know, because I, uh, certainly I heard plenty of people, and that carried over well into the Obama administration, especially the first term, say, oh, well, DHS can't actually do anything in this area. They're useless. Uh, and uh, I don't hear that as much. But uh, uh, what is it that they have been doing that has slowly changed that perception?
4: Well, I think you see uh, NPPD in particular really taking the reins on two Core cyber responsibilities that are really vested in DHS, uh, as opposed to vested in the federal government and, and right. done in different places. First, of course, is the .dot gov security responsibilities. So this is the this broader national cybersecurity protection system. That's the that's the formal and program. when you say .dot gov, they're basically protecting the governor systems,
0: which yes. means that they are responsible for every part of the government that's not military and intelligence-related. Uh, 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 they have the security mission, which is remarkable by itself because everybody used to think they had their own security mission, and now there's an idea that, no, there should be one uh, driving, organizing principle,
4: doing the contracts and running the security Yes, I mean, if you think about the this part of the Department of Homeland Security really being the enterprise service provider for the federal civilian networks, it's a remarkable, it's a remarkable thing, a, a tremendous responsibility, uh, but one that shows the the trust that's being given to the department and right. the responsibility that it has. And, 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 okay,
0: so this is a real job. This is a job that uh, if you screw up, everybody's going to know because. Uh, Everybody's going to be in your network. Uh, and uh, uh, it has to be done right. It's a big budget item. It requires talented people. Uh, and um, it is not advanced by a bunch of people sitting around the table thinking great thoughts. It, there's real work to be done.
4: No, that's exactly right. And it means uh, close interaction with the federal CIO council, mm-hmm. with the Office of Management and Budget, uh, really getting intertwined with Things like the Federal Information Security Management Act, which, of course, was modified at the end of last year to give DHS more responsibilities. And, yes, really carrying out and executing these large programs, Einstein, continuous diagnostics and mitigation, and the the National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center, this NKIN. And and all that Stuff is really, it, it amounts to,
0: if I understand it, an intrusion detection and an intrusion prevention system that is run on an integrated basis for the civilian side of the federal government. Uh, uh, that's, that's how I think anybody who was not into government naming protocols would have described it.
4: Yes, uh, I, I think that's a good, as good a shorthand as any. Okay.
0: So, I, so, uh, and then the end kick, but the end kick is slightly different, right? I, uh, what does the end kick do beyond just share information with the other federal agencies that they need to protect themselves.
4: So the NKIC is really a a central integrating point and and switching point. It does uh, monitor across uh, the federal uh, departments and agencies, but its responsibilities cross over into the second role. Uh, that that NPPD executes on behalf of the department. And that's that intersection and cooperation with the private sector.
0: So and and, and they're, if I remember, they're basically trying to collect signatures and uh, uh, other kinds of information about attacks, uh, maybe stuff that they've learned about in protecting the federal government,
4: and make sure it gets
0: shared in the private sector with people who are willing to share it.
4: Yes, uh, I think that's right. And I think that that's that's an evolving vision and some uh, and really a way stop on the way to what the end kick and the larger DHS cyber mission can become so what it's interesting about this
0: is we've got legislation we talked we're going to be talking about it in the uh, news roundup that is moving through the uh, congress to encourage information sharing uh but we're actually DHS is actually doing it now
4: Yes, uh, that's right. Uh, the, the, the types of information sharing that's contemplated in the model that's laid out in the legislation, DHS is already doing with groups like the financial services sector
0: mm-hmm.
3: uh,
4: through the FSISAC uh, and the multi-state information sharing and analysis center. So this is activity that's already underway. The legislation really gives it authority um, and gives uh, certainty uh, and protection uh, for those sharing the information and those using the information.
0: So there's a lesson here is that, you know, when I think about the legislation that authorizes DHS to do stuff, I can't think of any legislation in the last five, maybe eight years, that uh, authorized it to do anything that it wasn't already doing. It's, it, 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 the legislation increasingly is just ratifying stuff that has been set up usually with the assistance of the appropriators and the administration, but otherwise uh, without a lot of a, a special authorization.
4: Well, I think that's right, and I think this is a good example, going back to your first question of a place the department has really matured, where it can show leadership in an area, it can work with its appropriators, it can act programmatically, um, and uh, and then create that momentum to work with the the authorizer's um, and and drive towards legislation that makes sense and that and that helps drive the mission
0: forward well it's 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 really this is the, there's lots of history about the failure of congress uh to carry out the 911 commission's uh, recommendations for single oversight uh, uh for DHS um uh, but the saving grace of the whole congressional authorization organization is that the appropriators did create a single subcommittee and uh, um and the dirty secret of uh DHS is it's so operational it delivers the services direct to the American people that it uh, is responsible for as opposed to telling local police how they're supposed to deliver their services uh, or uh, writing checks uh, or writing rules. Uh, because it's operational, everything important that it does is really up to the appropriators and uh, if the appropriators think it's okay to do they'll find a way to get it authorized uh, and uh, and that means the appropriators are leading the department is leading it's trying stuff as long as the appropriators are happy eventually the authorizers are going to catch up
4: i think that's right and uh, and i think that operational flavor really pervades all of the things that dhs does and it's a positive aspect of it I would say that the department has good partners in the in the primary homeland security authorizing yes committees. no they're, they're
0: just they're just they're, they have no jurisdictions yes problem? Uh, yeah.
4: they the the fact that the appropriators have have consolidated and they have not uh, works against them
0: okay so that's what DHS does by itself um, and my sense is it's done that with some resistance from some agencies, and, and and I won't name them other than the Justice Department and Health and Human Services, uh, who, you know, kind of said, well, you're not the boss of me for anything. Uh, and this, the the legislation last year and the president has made clear that they they are on this issue. They are the boss of them. Uh, So my sense is that's mostly uh, rear guard mopping up action at this point. Uh, But there's lots of cyber stuff where they share jurisdiction.
4: That's the gentle word for it. Uh, How are they doing there? I think this is one of the challenge areas for DHS. I mean, first of all, um, we haven't yet talked about the other parts of DHS that do cyber. Um, right. So the- ICE
0: and Secret Service both investigate uh, uh, the electronic crimes.
4: Exactly. Exactly. And so this question of the law enforcement and investigations portfolio specifically, how – uh homeland security investigations within ice and how the secret service uh work together mm-hmm. with the, the fbi and other federal law enforcement agencies uh is still i think a work in progress uh right. although there is a lot of goodwill right now and a lot of um uh a lot of intent uh to to make that relationship work so i'm hopeful uh that that can keep driving forward and that's that's kind of the kernel of this whole question of cyber incident response how is the federal government, together with the impacted entities, together with the private security providers. What does an effective response to a large-scale incident look like? So I think
0: my sense, we're still a ways from having a good idea of that. Uh, My impression of, say, the Sony response is the FBI said, It's a crime scene. We're here. We're in charge. Uh, we'll tell you what you need to know. We'll report back to people. Uh, um, and if we, you know, if we, if we find signatures that need to be distributed, DHS can distribute them. But, um, it was, it was really, a one agency show uh, for most of the uh, uh, that event right
4: well, I think that that's, I think that 's right, but you know that 's not so dissimilar from the other aspects of homeland security if you think back, if you mm-hmm. think back about uh, the way that the FBI worked with uh, the local emergency services community and FEMA in incidents like Oklahoma City, right. this kind of we start out with this sense of this is mine and this is yours or this is mine and I don't care what else. It is from all different sides. Yeah. And we mature into a, a more sophisticated understanding of like, this is how we all knit together. Yeah. Well, and my
0: guess is that's why they created the CTIC, uh, so that the president had people advising him about these responses that had a broader view of the intelligence and the capabilities and the options that the President was going to have.
4: I think that's right, um, and it and there is a real need, a real gap for that intelligence integration function that a center uh, from DNI can do. I'm hopeful right. that the law enforcement agencies, the DHS, DOJ, FBI, the Service, ICE, um, can work together and, and rationalize their relationships without having to have it driven uh, in yeah. that way. Yeah, well, especially. <coughs>
0: since this may be a law enforcement investigation, but it's not actually going to end in a prosecution in most cases. So it's a little silly to insist on uh, treating it just as a law enforcement matter. There's a lot of law enforcement authorities that are very valuable, but uh, at the end of the day, this is not going to end in a courtroom. Uh,
4: no, I think that's right. And the other thing is that we've, been, we've become acclimated to the idea that a cyber incident is a data breach. And I think that Sony... Uh, yes shows up that's us a that, wake up call <laughs> yeah that that that's not the only paradigm we should be thinking and in fact that may just be the first of a variety of of flavors that, that incidents come in and certainly when you think about um, exfiltration for uh, ransom or, or other reasons and then dist- malicious destruction in this instance it was the entertainment industry but you can think of other industries financial services transportation where the the effects could be could be widespread Where the data breach paradigm isn't really the model and, and as you said, the, the response isn't just an investigation and a prosecution. Right. Uh, and
0: figuring out how to work with law, with, with the affected company is, it's gotta be a broad spectrum and high level, uh, interaction. That's tough to do because no one agency has the broad spectrum you need. So it, it's it, it is going to be uh, interesting. So I I, I want to talk about some other things that DHS does. One of the things I was really proud of is we turned DHS into a significant player on the national security side of CFIUS, uh, where which to tell the truth is now a cybersecurity regulatory agency more than anything else. Uh, how has that evolved in the last? Five eight years uh, um, uh, is is it really more organized as a, a you know from a cyber espionage and counter espionage point of view uh, and does DHS still play the uh, the role that we aspired to?
4: I mean I think it does I think you'd be very proud of where DHS is today in the in the CFIUS world I mean first of all it's an exciting time. Um, from from the governmental side, uh, participating on CFIUS, uh, you know, increase in foreign investments. You have these these new emerging issues, and and it, it places DHS in something of a central role uh, because its its responsibilities are wide ranging across critical infrastructure security and resilience issues. Um, yeah, in and, contrast
0: to actually say. DOJ, which is a big player if its equities are at stake, but its equities are pretty carefully defined and not, they, don't, they, they tend not to get out of those well-defined concerns.
4: Yes, and I think DHS has also taken uh, advantage of the opportunity of this, uh, the organizational structure that it has. We have very, the department has a very strong, uh, core CFIUS team that's linked very closely to that central policy function, but has good connectivity out across the different operating components, Um, and so it allows the department to really take advantage of its knowledge base and its strengths and its responsibilities. Yeah,
0: In contrast, I have to say to DOD, DOD has very broad sets of interest, but has been spotty about Having an office that can pull them all together and articulate them uh, in a prioritized way—it's—it's—it's—it's its it's, 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 a, its much more of a
4: improvised response. And I think that's—you uh, know—DOD is an excellent partner in the CFIUS process, um, but it's certainly uh, a two-step process in dealing with the CFIUS uh, organization and the policy organization. Yes. Um, since those are those are in two different locations. So. Um,
0: Think a, a little bit about what the policy office does at DHS that is different from the rest of DHS, right? You know, what, what's the value? What do you see the policy office doing or what can it do, uh, especially thinking about things like future technologies? But, but more generally, uh, a, is there a role for um, – or uh, there's a, there is a role – what, are, what should the policy office do to, to be effective, and what does it sometimes do? <laughs>
4: <laughs> yes, um, that's a good question. I think if you think of the DHS policy office, you think of three core competencies, policy development, coordination, yep. strategy and planning, uh, and international affairs. Um, and, in fact, you see the sec- this secretary really um, reshaping the office of policy um, to focus on those things and really yep. move the other things off. Um, the policy development coordination function is is kind of a core bread and butter of uh, of a policy office. But one of the one of the things that's been exciting to be a part of is to really uh, is to have been a part of is to really develop out that strategy and planning function, which which uh, includes. Growing that ability to look over the horizon, so that the department this is, is, this is just this is your baby. This is, I mean, <laughs> you know,
0: this is what you loved is is you know, trying to construct a system that would actually bring everybody together to talk about what's our strategy for the next four years, uh, how are we going to execute it, and then hopefully turn that into budget priorities.
4: That's true. That's true. Um, And one thing we were able to add on the front end of that, which I thought was particularly important, was the ability to look out, again, into the future and think about uh, risk strategically. What's coming down the road? And I think if you look at that, Obviously, the changing nature of the terrorist organizations uh, uh, that we see, um, and their electronic sophistication, but also nation-state challenges, uh, the increasing pervasiveness and interconnectivity of information communications technology, uh, and the potential for disruptions across a range of industries, really factor heavily in that kind of an examination. So this is you know,
0: the, uh, I, uh,
4: DHS is you know one of the departments in charge of
0: bad news, yes. right? and. This is the the one place where there's somebody who's supposed to be thinking about tomorrow's bad news, right? That is, it seems to me that that's uh, uh, our uh, that's the value one value the policy office brings, uh, and that turns out to be a, a requirement that the office look at where technology is going because technology, which empowers us all, makes is becomes popular. And among the people it empowers are terrorists who then use it to bring us unexpected bad news. So uh, in in a sense, you've gotten, if to the extent anybody had, an opportunity to think about how the future could bite us and how new technologies could bite us. So
4: what scares you? I think there's three things, that, three categories of things uh, that, that I see coming, and, and I think others do too. First... Um, is the whole range of new sensor technologies. You think about unmanned aerial systems, drones, uh, you think about microsatellites, all the different ways um, that we, uh, the U.S. government, private entities, other governments, other actors, Mm -hmm. are going to be able to gather uh, and see information and use it. Right. Uh, Everybody will have
0: their own private sensor network all, or, or will be able to draw on a private sensor network to understand everything that is happening in the world in a way that they don't now.
4: Yes. Uh, for good and for bad. Right. Second, um, you think about cryptocurrencies, but especially the blockchain. Okay, so no more going to Chipotle anonymously. No, right exactly. <laughs> we all know <laughs> right. now that that you can't do that. Uh, second, you know cryptocurrencies are 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 in the news, but I think if you think about the blockchain technology that sits underneath it. So this is Bitcoin, but the underlying technology for Bitcoin is blockchain, which is which is basically just think about a way to transact. Uh, you know assets with somebody else without any kind of intermediary in the middle right now we use uh, we we think about intermediaries and we get concerned about them because we want to know whether we can trust them or we don't trust them blockchain technology allows us to dispense with trust and simply engage in direct uh, exchanges of course the other the flip side of that is it's oftentimes those intermediaries that are the touch point with government. Right. So the government said that this is money
0: laundering, uh, is all about regulating the intermediaries so you know when money
4: moves and it doesn't move to people you don't want it to move to. So you have tremendous opportunities, tremendous possibilities and potential for lower costs, direct transactions, um, a lot of, eliminating a lot of the concerns, but, uh, you have a natural place where government it's going to be very concerned about the way that the technology develops. Um, so a lot of opportunity. So you could, you, a lot of could, you could say, uh, fine, I will pay a million
0: dollars to anybody who kills X, and I put the million dollars into a blockchain, uh, and it will be automatically paid out to somebody if they can demonstrate that they uh, they actually
4: carried out the murder. Well, I, I'm hopeful we won't go quite that far, um, but the the concern is that. Two anonymous parties can, could exchange or could transact that million dollars in, in a way that would be... Uh, completely outside completely, the banking system. Exactly. And and although transparent in terms of the, the ledger system, you could see that transaction happen completely anonymous because you'd have no idea who the sending and the receiving is. Oh, carries. so we know that, that somebody was paid to carry out the murder. We just won't know who it was. We know somebody was paid something to do something. Oh, okay. And we okay. don't know anything else. Oh, Grim. Third is, of course, if you think about all of those uh, those sensor networks and technologies, and you think of all of the things like, if you think about the example of the blockchain, the fact that the ledger is completely tra- transparent, but we don't know what it means. The 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 idea of thinking about the big data applications that are going to need to be put in place for us to put in put, to to have an understanding, but comprehend everything that the sensor networks are picking up, everything that that modern interconnected life uh, uh is showing us and particularly when you think about um, the the types of of security that the Department of Homeland Security engages in when you're talking about voluntarily submitted information for travel for trade right. uh for tourism for immigration um, this is uh the volumes of information uh and the ways that that information relates uh, to other information is is becoming. It's already become so vast um, that we need ever increasing uh, mechanisms to make sense of all of it. But which we're going to get because computing is going to get cheaper all the time, right? Yes, and we're seeing that right now. We're in an unbelievably rapid cycle of, of technological development in this area, where uh, you know remarkable developments come online, become governmentally available, commercially available, and then outdated. Um, before the government's acquisition cycle can even make the first purchase. I, 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 I'm, I'm proud to say that I can now say I have lived through
0: technology's birth and death, right? The fax machine, I was there when fax was, faxing was cool, and now of course it's, pre- it's preposterous. Exactly. Uh, so yes, uh, uh, and you too will live through that cycle, uh, eventually. Yeah. Um my guess is, well, uh, flip phones, right? Yeah. They're, they're, they're gone, uh, or essentially gone. Uh, uh, well, you know, I, I, I back in the nineties when I started doing technology law in the early nineties, somebody said, uh, um, how do you feel about this? And I said, uh, it's great. I've never been more prosperous. I've never had more fun and I've never been more scared. Sounds like we're in for another 20 years of that. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh <laughs> well, thank you. This is great and we'll get you on the pad- podcast. I want to have you and Jason, uh, uh, trade insights about Bitcoin and blockchains, uh, until I understand it. Uh, and, um, uh, really appreciate your coming on. Uh, and I think we better wrap this up. We're just two or three minutes over. Uh, uh, any any last minute uh, thoughts, uh, speeches you guys are going to be giving? I am actually at um, uh, uh, the... Uh uh, RSA conference. I'm giving a talk to Microsoft today uh, where I have to wear my uh, uh, I have more than one suit from the 1990s and I'm going to wear one of them uh, uh, to talk about key escrow encryption uh, uh, with Scott Charney uh, and then uh, I'm doing a panel uh, Friday uh, and after that uh, uh, we're having Steptoe is uh, uh, having the entire right wing conspiracy. Uh, the Federalist Society is coming in uh, and, uh, John Yu is going to talk to us about cyber war, uh, among other things, uh, should be a lot of fun. That'll be next week. Uh, um, uh, Michael, Jason, any speaking engagements coming up?
2: Um, on Thursday, I'm, I'm going to be, uh, doing a panel on virtual currencies, um, for the Bretton Woods Foundation, uh, here in DC.
0: Oh, that should be fun. Okay. Um, As a reminder, the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast is open to feedback. Uh, Send your comments to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. As you can tell from some of our past uh, um, uh, programs, we do actually read your mail and uh, respond to it. So uh, if you'd rather leave a message by phone, 202-862-5785. This has been Episode 63 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Next week, we'll be joined by Mary DeRosa, former Deputy Counsel to the President for the National Security Council, uh, uh, and the uh, woman who, when I complained about uh, over-lawyering of... Uh, uh, cyber uh, issues and national security issues began referring to it as my self-loathing problem and uh, following her, Bruce Schneier, cryptographer, computer security guru and privacy specialist uh, talking about his uh, book Data and Goliath and answering as many awkward questions as I can come up with in 30 minutes. Uh, finally, if you want to see us live, God help you, uh, uh, May 7th Uh, from 6 to 9.30, we're having a beer summit, uh, with, uh, lawfare and rational security, uh, uh, podcasts at the Washington Firehouse, uh, 1626 North Capitol Street, Washington, D.C. And then on May 21, we'll be recording at the Isanova Chapter Meeting in McLean from 530 to 8 p.m. We hope you'll join us there or online uh, as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.